Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Welcome to the Mr. Beacon podcast. This week is pretty special. We've got one of the most consequential computer companies in the world, IBM, uh, that uh, we're going to be featuring. Uh, and their uh, program director, for supply chain intelligence, uh, Wiggs Civitillo. He is uh, a great guy and uh, he has uh, an amazing portfolio of products that he manages. Uh, and so that's what we're going to drill into. It's important stuff. We are focused on IoT on this podcast, but IoT is really infrastructure. It's the applications that make it useful. And so this application layer that IBM provide is the thing that gives visibility to supply chains. And that visibility is going to drive massive, explosive growth of IoT uh, technologies. Um, so we're going to talk about the applications for it, how it works, what IBM is doing. And for those of you who, obviously everyone knows IBM, but you want to be able to talk about it intel intelligently, then Wix is going to give us an update on uh, on their latest, as well as some of the history. So interesting stuff. Enjoy it. The Mr. Beacon Ambient IoT Podcast is sponsored by Williot, bringing intelligence to every single thing. So Wiggs, welcome to the Mr. Beacon Ambient IoT Podcast. It is a real pleasure to, to have you on the show. Thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure. We've got a lot to talk about. Um, second half of the show, we're going to talk a, a bit about IBM. Um, this show is all about kind of, uh, well, me learning. That's actually the kind of the secret reason for the show, uh, but also equipping our listeners and viewers with what they need to be uh, successful in creating, designing solutions. And I think IBM is an incredibly significant company. And later on, we'll go into some of the history and how that's evolved uh, since um, since the 2000s when I worked there. Um, uh, but we're going to get a chance to talk to you about your um, the area that you're responsible for and get into um, crypto, uh, into the supply chain, um, into the applications that uh, IBM has that are really at the heart of some of the biggest companies in the world and the way they manage their supply chains. And you've recently made an announcement on a partnership with iFoodDS. So I want to talk about that. But I mean, the, the reason uh, why 
I think this area is important is, uh, you know, we're focused on Internet of Things, IoT, uh, and a, a rebirth of IoT that will deliver on the original vision and scale beyond the few tens of billions to trillions. Uh, and it's really the things that are in the supply chain, especially the food, uh, where we can have huge benefits if we connect it to the power of the cloud, which IBM knows all about, um, and apply the intelligence there to reduce waste, uh, to manage down carbon footprint, and to unlock huge economies and profits and new business models. But at, you know, at the center of this, you need some infrastructure. And I've, as I've been thinking and uh, working on ambient IoT, one of the bits that I'm really been um, concerned about, to be frank, is how do you join up suppliers, uh, distributors, retailers, and how do you pass all of this information up and down the, the supply chain, especially, you know, these new sensing dimensions that we have. And I think, you know, one of the, the products that's in your product portfolio as a product manager um, includes the GS1 uh, EPCIS uh, standards that can be used to uh, go beyond the kind of the very crude, oh, this pallet's arriving to the details of exactly where things are in the supply chain at a, a much more granular level and the uh, the condition that they're in, the temperature that they're in, and even uh, in the future, the, the, the carbon that's being accumulated at every step. And it's all very well having sensors that can measure that, uh, which is what I focus on in my day job, but how do we pass that data around? And I think IBM is of a stature and has some of the tools to do that. So welcome to the show. Want to get into it. Um, maybe you can describe a bit about your role at IBM and the, give an overview of the products that you're responsible for. Yes, certainly. And uh, thanks again. You know this this is uh, such a wonderful opportunity to share share my story, share the IBM Food Trust story. <clears throat> so, I, I'm a product manager at IBM. Um, I'm a, a leader of uh, a few different products, but uh, one of my one of my favorites and one that I've spent you know most of my time at IBM with is IBM Food Trust. Um, it's it's a very dynamic role within product management. You know, working very closely with our development teams, our customers, our partners. Uh, to define the platform's features and capabilities, and I've been doing that for for the past you know, four or five years, um, really just continuously uh, trying to evolve the product to meet the needs of the food industry and, and make sure that we're uh, facilitating the, the best experiences possible. Now, this story of IBM Food Trust is a bit of a fascinating one, and I'd, I'd love to share a little bit about it if, if that's okay. Um, really rooted. Uh, yeah, rooted in the need for increased transparency and increased food safety in the global food supply chain. So it all began uh, you know, with a series of very high profile food safety incidents that, that really shook consumer confidence. So you know, we saw cases of E. coli outbreaks, we saw salmonella uh, contamination and, and even counterfeit products to some degree, right? I, I did some research and I learned that you know the odds of me I, I, if I order a red snapper in New York City at a restaurant, there's there's only really a, a 50 or so percent chance that I'm actually getting red snapper on the plate because there's another fish that might be you know one quarter of the cost that, that I could be served and I wouldn't know any better, right? And and I really wouldn't. I, I don't have that discerning taste. Um, 
So IBM recognized very early on that blockchain technology had the potential to really revolutionize the way that we manage the food supply chain. Um, concept was very simple, but groundbreaking. We're going to create a digital ledger that records every step of the journey of a food product from farm to table. Um, the ledger built on blockchain, specifically Hyperledger Fabric, would be tamper-proof and immutable and accessible to all authorized participants, right? That, that's a key piece and we can dig into more later. But uh, the key tenant of the platform is that every company owns their data and controls the privacy and how they want to share their data. And that's very important. And so this system was designed to provide a unchangeable record of all the product's history and you know, promoting transparency and trust. Um, now, in order to do that, um, you, you need to adhere to different standards. And, and we can talk about EPSIS in a moment. But um, IBM Food Trust was initially launched as a pilot project with uh, a number of major, major food industry players. We're, we're talking about you know, Walmart, Nestle, Tyson Foods, right? And all participating in uh, uploading their data, sharing their data, and you know, building uh, helping build this network of supply chain participants that can seamlessly share their data. Um, today, we've become a global platform with a network of hundreds of suppliers, retailers, and consumers all working together uh, to ensure the integrity and safety of the food that's being produced and consumed. Um, so, you know, the, the driving force really behind what we're trying to create is a shared vision of building a safer, smarter, more transparent, and efficient supply chain ecosystem for everyone. Um, and that's really evolved into a tool for the industry, providing consumers with the story of their products, right? Consumers, they love seeing love seeing the story of their products, but they don't want a generic marketing story of here's how your coffee may have been treated. They want to know, how did my actual cup of coffee come to be? Where was where was the farm where it was harvested? And, and tell me about my specific product. And um, you know, this really makes a difference in building trust. That's why we called it IBM Food trust. And, and that's a really key tenant of what we've built. And if I can just butt in, I, I think it is really important. And I think there's two dimensions to it. One is about food merchandising, but the other one is actually a chance to make really meaningful change in where food comes from. So, you know, I, I there's a local, uh, I, I go to all sorts of places, I actually buy stuff at Walmart, but I also go to a local store called Jimbo's. Um, and, uh, it's organic and everything costs roughly 60% more than uh, uh, what you'd pay elsewhere. But I pay that because they have these little signs that tell me where the food came from and how far away it's traveled. And that is, I think, an incredible opportunity. You know, we can scale that experience and the and the trust and the enjoyment. It gives me, you know, I feel good about the food that I'm eating when I know where it came from because as anyone that watched that Netflix documentary Poison knows, you know, if your food comes from um, from a farm that's uh, next to some source of uh, of pollution, even though it's organic and there's but there's slurry running from a, a densely packed cattle shed, um, then you know it can be it can be dangerous. So I think um, you know, there's definitely money to be made and there's joy to be had from giving consumers visibility on exactly what they're eating and where it came from. It's not just uh, window dressing. Uh, it, it can be a core part of the business model. But the thing that really gets me passionate is uh, 
and I got this from a conversation I had with an amazing climate scientist um, who I've mentioned before on the podcast, Mike Berners-Lee, younger brother of Tim Berners-Lee, the guy that invented the web and HTML and HTTP. So Mike is as brilliant as his brother, but he's focused on climate. And the thing that he's passionate about is um, consumers voting with their purses and wallets to buy food that is good for the planet, to buy food that either has a low carbon footprint or maybe even a negative carbon footprint It was if it was grown from a regenerative farm. But how are we gonna find this out at scale? And that's why I think what you're describing is, is actually very important. I think it's also a big business opportunity. So I had to get that in, um, uh, but I didn't want to interrupt your, your flow. I do have some questions though about how it works. So I, I have to confess, I came to IBM Food Trust with a huge amount of skepticism. I kind of had a, envisaged these massive um, uh, blockchain mining farms uh, creating uh, very wasteful data structures that weren't really required. Um, and can you help disabuse me of that uh, that prejudice? I would be happy to. Yes, and and it's a common it's a common challenge that we've faced. You know, being in the blockchain space, many minds tend to naturally gravitate towards crypto to um, you know open permissionless ledgers like Ethereum, like you know Bitcoin. Um, and and it's important to acknowledge there are other types of blockchains or different categories of blockchains. Specifically, you know, Hyperledger Fabric is very focused on supporting um, the, the concept of a private permissioned ledger, right? The idea of not having mining operations, only having trusted parties handling those, those nodes, which we call trust anchors. And uh, that really changes the dynamic of the system. Uh, you know, talking about, you know, IBM's uh, you know, executive level, um, you know, a high level strategy, sustainability is core, a, a very core tenant to what we're trying to do. We, we've actually recently renamed our entire software you know, division that I'm a part of to IBM sustainability software. And and that's, you know, not not just a message to the market of our investment in this space, but it's, it's taking every product that we have and figure out how we can drive sustainable goals. So um, when we think about food traceability, we're, we're, you know, feeding into redu a reduction in food waste, right? Building more consumer trust and confidence. And even when we look at this on a macro, macro scale, and, and what you were just saying about consumers voting with their wallets on better quality food and, uh, you know, treating treating the farms and, and all the participants in the supply chain better, there's a version of that that has us eating food that's so much better, so much nutrient rich and healthy. And I was talking with one of your colleagues about this, um, that we actually reduce healthcare costs, right? We actually give people healthier lives. We we improve the health of you know, people on a on a macro scale, and that's that's a beautiful vision. I know we're getting a little off off track on this, but um, I, I really think it's it's something that um, I I would love to see come to come to fruition. Yeah, that's Anthony Yousefian, who's our uh, VP of. Uh of climate and circularity. And he, he spent a bunch of time in agri-tech uh, agri and uh, as well as climate. So, but back to IBM and Food Trust. Um, so how does Food Trust work today? Let's say I am a supplier and I am selling to one of the biggest grocery chains in the world. 
um, who happens to use IBM Food Trust. How do I see it and what does it do? Yeah, so I'll, I'll start at the high level and, and we'll, go, we'll go a little bit deeper. We won't go too deep. But from a seller's perspective, from any participant's perspective, it's very easy to get data onto the platform, right? You don't need to know anything about blockchain. You don't need to you know, study the GS1 standard even or even understand what EPCIS uh, events are. Right. All you need to do is uh, ensure that you're collecting the right data, and uh, the, that collection can happen via simple web forms. Right. Pull up your tablet, pull up your computer, and just enter enter data in uh, while you're on the manufacturing line, while you're on the farm. Right. Pull out your phone and, and enter that you've just harvested a product. Right. And you know the date, the time, and what product you've harvested, and what your identify identification code is. Um, or you could do it in a programmatic way, right? You could integrate with our APIs and feed data from your ERP systems, from other systems that might collect this data. Now, it's important to acknowledge that many ERP systems today don't collect all of the data necessary for traceability, right? Traceability is much different than the financial focus of many ERP systems. If we think about the origins of SAP, that was built originally as an accounting system. It's not designed to tell the story of the product. So when, we, when we're telling the story, you really need to break down what each participant does in the supply chain. So if if I'm a farm, I'm harvesting and I'm shipping. And then once I ship, someone's receiving it, right? It could be a broker, a distributor, you know, that a, a processor, right? Or a cooler, right? Whoever it is receives that product, they do something to it, then they ship it, right? Step by step until it gets all the way to the consumer, right? And, and it's consumed. Now, there could be complex transformation events that are many to one, right? You take all the ingredients, you've got feta cheese, cucumbers, carrots, and romaine lettuce into a Greek salad, right? That's a transformation that needs to be tracked across different identifiers. And um, and then that salad could be divided into portions or it could be you know allocated in different ways. And so the idea of traceability does tell the story of the product, but it requires additional information to be captured so that each link can be made in the supply chain. So at the underlying level, the IBM Futros platform is leveraging blockchain technology. And more specifically, it's built on the Hyperledger fabric. Um, this is getting back a little bit to your original question of kind of this mega kind of mining operation. Mm -hmm. um, Hyperledger fabric is a bit of background, is an open source uh, Linux foundation maintained framework that was developed. Um, you know, IBM had huge contributions to this framework, but uh, it is open source and, and publicly owned and many different contributors around the world um, under the you know, Hyperledger project, right? So it's designed to offer privacy, scalability, and security, making it an ideal choice for food supply chain, mm -hmm. right? And, and specifically, you know, privacy is paramount. Your data is your own data. If we take a supplier, um, they don't want two different retailers that they serve to see what they're shipping to another retailer because you could find yourself in a very... Um, dangerous anti-competitive situation where you may lose business with one, um, or you know, be doing business with one at the expense of the other. So, um, the way that our system is designed is that the data that you upload, um, you control how you share it. Now we have default entitlements that allow end-to-end -end traceability, and the way that works is at the actual lot level, at the individual unit, right? If it's a crate of tomatoes or a crate of lettuce. Um, if you ship 10 crates to one retailer and 20 crates to another, those retailers can only see data for the products that they touch and the products that they receive. And that's really, really important. Now, it's 
It's a little bit complex to do that, but the key part about how data is shared is that it's handled in a trusted way. And this is where some of the blockchain aspects come into, come into play. And specifically, we think about smart contracts, right? Smart contracts is a concept of uh, enforcing an agreement of how data is handled once it's on the platform. So if I register an event that a product has been delivered to my warehouse, um, then I should automatic, automatically issue payment, right? And even better, if we have IoT sensors, right, tracking a product and they can register that a product's been received, there's no need for any human intervention. We know exactly where the product is. We know that that contract, the contract of delivering the product on time and in full has been delivered and you can issue payment. The potential to reduce disputes in the industry is huge and disputes are not insignificant in this industry, right? It's it's a commonality of doing business is that you need to deal with disputes. Um, shipments do arrive late, right? This, this stuff happens, right? And there are all sorts of complexities in how products are handled. But um, underlying this smart contract um, uh, context is also rules about how we handle data sharing. IBM can't change those rules, right? They are encoded on the ledger, right? They're all secure. And that adds a layer of trust about how we're handling your data. You can see exactly what our governance structure is for how we handle data. And you can know that your, your data is being handled in a trusted way. There's, there's no risk of IBM coming in and just changing everything on you. It's um, consistent and it's trusted, which makes a big difference to a lot of enterprise-grade companies. Well, I have a question about this visibility, basically how much you can see and how much you can restrict. I mean, in my ideal world, then I'm, I'm going to the store and I'm seeing exactly the farm where the product came from, when it was uh, harvested, um, and how long it took to, to get to me. And oh, by the way, I'd also like to see the carbon footprint so I can use my uh, resources to vote for low carbon food. Is that end-to-end -end visibility something that you can facilitate? Absolutely, and, and that really is the end goal, right? Um, some companies may not want that, and that's, that's perfectly fine, right? It, in, um, in the context of the Food Safety Modernization Act, right, the FDA legislation that's just gone into effect, um, companies need to have traceability data, and there is a mandate out there for uh, many categories of food. Um, but it doesn't require end-to-end -end traceability. What end-to-end -end traceability facilitates is not only a story for consumers, but faster and more precise recalls. Um, and, and that story to consumers has been proven to have a positive effect on consumption habits, on price, uh, you know, uh, price, price marks, right? Willingness to pay for a higher price. Um, so uh, the end-to-end -end visibility is absolutely feasible, and that's something that we facilitated for uh, many different supply chains for many different categories. Is anyone doing it yet? Or Because my, my sense of the status quo is that, generally speaking, the people up and down the supply chain don't really want to share the, the data today. And I'm hoping that there'll be good reasons that make sense to their business to do it. But am I right in saying that generally end-to-end -end visibility, you could facilitate it, but the market has not spoken to the point that those that you can actually see it today. Emphatically, yes. It, it's been done in many, many different categories. Now, I, I will oh. caveat to say some categories may not may not find it as valuable. You need to make sure that it's category specific. It's you know a product that really does benefit from uh, traceability. Uh, in some cases, if recalls are less frequent and consumers aren't as passionate about seeing the story, 
it may not make sense. It, it may not have a business justification to actually go with traceability. But even in those cases, that end-to-end traceability provides visibility about how your products are treated and you can manage shelf life. You can manage um, you know, e- expiration risk, right? You can, you can understand the dwell time of your product, both at your facilities and at your partner's facilities to make your supply chains more efficient and more resilient. Um, and you can identify risk and share certificates um, to validate that you know someone's certified as Rainforest Alliance uh, compliant, right? Or uh, you know any any kind of certificates that need to flow through the supply chain with this data. So even beyond the two use cases, right? Supply chain efficiency is a broad category uh, that is a big driver for some companies. So with end-to-end traceability, we've seen use cases across all these products. We've even seen. A large drive in non-food categories as well. So we've seen it um, with textiles as a major driver in Europe with a lot of the new sustainability regulations and especially regulations like the EU Deforestation Act and uh, regulations like um, the Uyghur Forced Labor Prevention Act, right? These uh, ethical labor standards that require product traceability are getting into the same space where we've been that requires product level traceability. And um, yeah, that's that's been an interesting journey where some laws are now starting to mandate this end-to-end traceability, which is going to have a big impact on how companies handle this. Well, and the FDA's Food Safety Modernization Act Rule 204 is a classic example of that. And I want to talk about that and iFood DS. But before we get there, I, I want to understand a bit more about the plumbing. Um, can you explain a bit about how uh, EPCIS is used by your platform? We've had uh, folks from GS1 on, and uh, what the uh, um, uh, e- even the the chair of the group that defied EPCIS. So we've kind of gone into the detail uh, of it in the abstract, but I'm really interested to understand how you're using it today, and if if there are going to be any changes, how you might use it in the future. Yeah, uh, GS1 and EPCIS is a a crucial component of IBM Food Trust from the beginning. I think I think. IBM made a really smart decision to not assume that we know how to handle traceability better than the food industry. And I think that's a really important thing. Some, some technologies, companies come in and kind of assume that they can, they can build their own standard. They can do it better than people that have been doing this for hundreds of years, right? Not hundreds, but you know, the, the industry that's learned and grown and, and, you know, um, I'm not saying they're 100 year old operators doing traceability. No, but the but the uh, the food industry has been going for. Uh, I mean, the farming uh, th- tens of thousands of years, uh, organized ag- agricultural. So I, I get your point. Yeah. So so the GS1 standard is uh, phenomenal. We we've uh, loved using it because it's not only provided us a framework to capture the necessary data for traceability, but also provided a framework for interoperability with other solution providers. Uh, now, just to start, you know, EPCIS, sorry, EPCIS. Um, it's a for those that maybe are less familiar or missed the other podcast. It's a um, it's a standard that enables the sharing of event data about the movement of and, and status of products within the supply chain. Um, by incorporating EPCIS into IBM Food Trust, we can capture information about. Uh, various points of the supply chain, such as the movement of a product from one location to another, the combination of ingredients, just like the transformation events I was mentioning, many to one, one to many. Um, And EPCIS provides that underlying language that allows us to standardize the data and 
communicate not only with other companies but within our own um, within our own framework, right? About how data should be shared. So interoperability is another key area that the GS1 standard facilitates that I really think is very important. So early on in the journey, we had a lot of support from major companies. We had a lot of momentum, but very quickly we learned it's a very difficult thing to capture this data. In many cases, it's not enough to just provide the technology and expect these companies. Many cases, you know, these, these food safety teams are very, very lean, very small teams that operate and have the management, responsibility of the management of huge levels of risk for their, their companies. Um, and so adding food traceability to their plates and adding additional data capture to all of their teams across the entire supply chain is a huge, huge lift. In many cases, they need help. They need guidance. They need someone to come in and hold their hands, right? And and maybe it's holding their hands, maybe it's doing some of the work for them, but uh, we were not able to provide enough support to the industry. We, we provided enough support for many different categories, but it's so much support that um, realistically, I think the entire industry's technology providers all need to, to work together to provide the capacity to help companies do what's needed to become compliant with FISMA, right? And, and I bring this back to the Food Safety Modernization Act, Rule 204. It's going to go into effect in January of 2026. We're about one third of the way there to compliance. None, no company is a one third of the way to being compliant. Um, but we're going to see an absolutely exponential curve of companies that come up on that deadline and want to get it done as soon as possible. And the industry technology providers are just going to run out of capacity. So um, our thinking and, and my thinking specifically has been that this will not be in any scenario a one winner take all market. As much as we'd like everyone to be on IBM Food Trust and participating, we do need a way to work with other technology providers to share data and share it in a trusted way. Bringing this all the way back to GS1, GS1 lays the standard to share data in that standardized format. So mm -hmm. we do have the means to do, do that data sharing. We have run pilots on data sharing. Uh, we know that it works. And with the, the new FISMA requirements, right, their, their strict data standard, that is fully compliant with the GS1 standard, right? So we, we know that we have a model that works. We're adding a few data attributes to that model. Um, and I think we're really well positioned to partner with other people in the industry um, to make, make these companies successful. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Well, yeah, I think you're, you're masterfully drawing us to the next topic of our discussion, which is uh, iFoodDS. So you just uh, announced that partnership. I, to be frank, I was very surprised. I thought that you guys did everything, didn't need anyone, 
why why are you partnering with this uh, other company and who are they yeah it, not to not to harp on the message uh, of uh, togetherness and collaboration too much but an, another quick anecdote you know we we were attending uh, the North American Food Safety and Quality Conference in Chicago recently and one of the themes that just kept coming up over and over and over again which i loved was that as an industry we are better when we work together um, there's no there's no questioning this and and you know there there is some conventional concepts of competition and and um, especially in the data you know the the solution provider space right we we have companies that are doing very similar things to what we're doing i think globally there are maybe 200 different traceability solution providers that ibm food trust technically competes with but I would really like to shift the narrative to working together. And I think that's the only way that we're all going to be successful. Now, iFoodDS is an exceptional company. Um, I love everything about them. And you know, we started talking with them about eight months ago um, about a potential partnership um, with with no real knowledge of what that would turn into, right? It, you know, a lot of these conversations start um, as just meeting, meeting these people. Uh, you know, we met up in New York and got to know each other and started having the conversation. And as things developed, it became very clear to me that iFoodDS was going to be a power in this industry, right? And, and a staying force. Some of the reasons I had this belief, um, very easy to explain. Uh, they hired Andrew Kennedy, right? Uh, who is a very well-known player in the industry. He is one of the key contributors and writers of the actual FISMA Rule 204D. Um, Having him on their team was a huge, huge step for them. And when it comes to providing the services and the expertise to help companies get compliant with the rule, there's nothing, nothing better than having the guy that wrote the rule, right? I, I mm -hmm. think that's pretty simply said. Yeah. Now, we also had another key player come full circle for us. So at the start of when IBM Food Trust launched, we were actually working very closely with Frank Giannis when he was at Walmart to build this initiative together. And he was one of the ones that actually helped drive you know, the mandate to the growers, you know, drive this mission. Um, he has been on this mission, I think, for a large part of his life to facilitate improved food safety through the concept of traceability. And he's done incredible things. Uh, after Walmart, he moved on to the FDA, where he was a deputy commissioner for a number of years, uh, where he, again, had huge impact, but continued to drive this initiative and was able to um, push through the finalization of this rule. So he joined the iFoodDS board recently, and I had the pleasure of, of spending a couple of days with him at the iFoodDS you know, company meeting recently. And uh, what an incredible, what an incredible guy! What an incredible story that he has! And um, you know, he continues to be a, a major force in the industry, you know, providing guidance and help to companies that are interested in um, becoming compliant, right, and working on this compliance journey. And, and at the risk of self-promotion, which is a risk I'm always willing to take, um, then Frank has been on this show. So a couple of weeks ago, uh, then uh, people can check out the episode with Frank. And uh, I fully agree with all the positive things you've uh, said about him. I have the privilege to, uh, to, to work with him as he's also uh, full disclosure and a, 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 a strategic advisor for, uh, for Williot, which I think is part of how I got the chance to, to, to meet you. But anyway, back to your um, and IBM's decision on um, why to work with iFoodDS. It's, it's pretty clear they've got amazing expertise between Frank and Andrew. Then you've got the architect and the, uh, the builder, if you like, <laughs> of the rule. Um, what about the product fit? 
fit between their product and your product? Hey, it's a great question. And, and the product fit could not have been better, right? It, when, when we think about our individual strengths, um, iFoodDS is a company that has had uh, a great deal of success in the food quality, traceability, and you know, insights and analytics space. They have strong technology capabilities, deep industry expertise, well beyond Andy and Frank, right? It, it's really a, a, a very strong team, trusted by major brands like Ahold, US Foods, um, Del Monte, Aldi, just to name a few. Um, and with that track record, right, complementing their expertise and depth of knowledge with IBM's technology um, seemed to be a very natural play. Now, based on that initial theory, right, it turned into so much more. And it's actually the case that they address one of the biggest challenges that I was alluding to in this food traceability space, which is collecting the data, the data onboarding and data capture. Now, there, there are needs, the needs of, there's no one size fits all of data capture. Everyone needs a different set of requirements. Everyone has different needs of what type of data they need to capture, what when they need to capture the data, you know how they want to capture the data. It could be on their phones. It could be um, printing labels to put on cases, right? Uh, we discovered that the iFoodDS team has a very strong suite of technology to allow for data capture and specifically FISMA compliant data capture for many different specific personas of the supply chain. So that complemented the basic data capture that we had. You know, we had web forms, we had spreadsheets, you know, APIs, but that complementary functionality expanded the suite of data capture well beyond what we had had in the past. So what we are resulting with and what we're calling the iFoodDS Trace Exchange uh, solution with IBM Food Trust is a solution that has expansive data capture capabilities, an incredibly strong backend backed by blockchain in a scalable way that already hosts data for many of the, the world's largest enterprises today. So we have enterprise-grade scalability and um, not to mention, you know, the, the amount of due diligence that IBM does on the trust and security front is really unparalleled. It's it's a it's an enterprise company uh, with strong strong practices around making sure data is secure and safe, um, and then the expertise to actually go implement and help companies out with the services branch of iFoodDS brought us all together in a really powerful way. So um, we've. We're really excited. I, I really do think it's a significant step forward for the industry. I think iFoodDS will be a lasting, lasting player um, and a major player in in the way that companies look at food traceability and food safety moving forward. And so, if I if I'm a, a grocer or a quick service restaurant and I buy this solution, do I um, contract with both of you, or am I contracting with iFoodDS and I, I, I just get the IBM as an embedded solution? Yeah, so we're we're having iFoodDS lead with the contracting and and lead with kind of the uh, approach, right? And and that's that's a, a little bit of a result of um, you know the the strength that they have with you know not only their um, knowledgeable sellers and their 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 kind of assistants, they've got you know, project managers, they've. They've, they've really got a comprehensive um, team there that, that can provide okay. everything. Um, but it, it is important to acknowledge that, you know, the IBM Food Trust um, offering, right? We do have existing clients that are, you know, existing customers of Food Trust that may not need these additional services. They may already have integrations. They may already be part of the network. They also will be a part of this global network. So anyone that joins from any avenue, whether it be direct through IBM, whether it be uh, through iFoodDS, 
um, will have access to be able to share their data seamlessly with anyone else on the network. So as the network grows, the economies of scale really grow very quickly. And and we're, we're talking about you know one supplier that could feed data to 20 retailers instantaneously, or um, you know, one one retailer that can interact with you know ten thousand of their suppliers, you know, not only tier one but also tier two, three, four, all the way up to to provenance of the origin of the product. So um, as the network grows, right, it doesn't really matter who who brings the customers in, but uh, and the underlying structure, of this network will continue to grow and provide such a service for the industry. And with this integrated solution, am I going to be seeing? dashboards from both companies? When would I use one versus the other, if that's the case? Yeah. Yeah. So we've, we've actually divvied it up based on personas. So, um, and, and, you know, this is all subject to change. We're, we're going to keep meeting the needs of our, our different users, but the way we balance out the, the different personas is we have some people that are ingesting data, right? The, you know, the, the data capture people. And then this could be someone, as I've mentioned on the farm, it could be someone in the manufacturing plant. It could be any operational user that is submitting data to be recorded. Now that's typically going to be done through the iFood DS applications because they have this suite of tools that help you capture all the data necessary, bring it all together and submit it to IBM Food Trust and, and you know capture it in a FISMA compliant way. Now on the back end, we have a massive, massive set of tools uh, for analytics, for dashboards, for you know, custom ways to view and analyze the data. Um, it's it's very important that you're making sure that the data that gets in is good, right? So we can run evaluations on the data to say, of the data you're receiving from these partners, of the data you've uploaded, these items are not good, right? You, you're missing fields. You're um, not sharing data properly, right? There, there are a whole host of data issues that could come up. So we've actually built within what's called the IBM Supply Chain Intelligence Suite, a host of applications that allow you to analyze the data, um, understand where your inventory is, understand where data quality issues may exist, and then instantaneously pull the reports that the FDA needs. So as a very key part of that, you can come in and very quickly uh, just say, you know, I, I need a report on this product in this time frame, and provide the FDA exactly what they need in a matter of minutes. When I think about what we've done with Food Trust and the future that we have, I, I think it's really bright. And I think with the FDA's mandate, not only will we see huge progress for this industry in the U.S., but also around the world. We've seen other other countries and other um, you know other government organizations adopting these policies, not only to drive food safety for their um, you know for their populaces, but also to drive um, a reduction in food waste, sustainability initiatives, and this combination of uh, sustainability in, in all of its facets, you know, environmental, social, and governance, um, bringing that aspect into the solution paints a really beautiful picture of how we can use this to reduce food waste, feed more people in the world, provide more nutrition, reduce impact to our healthcare system, and really paint a better future in the food space. So I, I think we're we're just getting started on many of these fronts. And you know, when we when we take traceability of data and we Think about what we can layer on top, like carbon footprint in the foods that we're harvesting, like um, sustainable practices, like certificates, documents, audits. All of the things that we can do get me personally very excited about how much more potential there is in this space. So I think the next next few years are going to be really uh, defining of, of what this industry becomes. Um, I'll, I'll leave it at that. I, I couldn't agree more. And I, one of the things that I uh, 
noticed is IBM's one of your more recent uh, marketing campaigns. Let's create something that changes everything. And I really think that this is an example of something that could change everything, the ability to join everything up and uh, let, giving people information um, uh, about what they're eating and uh, providing regulators with what they need to keep us safe. That's uh, important work. So full disclosure, I used to work at IBM. And I think once you've worked at IBM, it stays with you for the rest of your life. And I remember this was like back in 2000, 2001, the dot-com boom was uh, just uh, booming. And IBM bought this computer manufacturer that I, I, I worked for. It's like 3,000 people merged into a company that was over 300,000 people. And uh, I, I went into it um, uh, and you know, this was at the end of a century that basically s saw IBM completely dominate the computing landscape, uh, the mainframe. Uh, they were just uh, a force, uh, an unparalleled force in computing. They pioneered the IBM PC. Uh, uh, the world's business was run on IBM mainframes. And uh, they just kind of split into hardware, software, and services, but they were essentially still a massive hardware company. Um, and uh, so I looked upon working at IBM as being a, a privilege and an education, really, being on the inside of this giant with immense power and an incredible legacy of, uh, of, of innovation and, uh, and so forth. So... Um, I, I, I looked, I asked uh, Bard, what's changed uh, at IBM since uh, 2000? And, um, and it basically described, uh, said it's got a bit smaller, but it's still like uh, best part of, uh, of, of uh, 300,000 uh, people. That's a lot of people. Um, uh, but the shift onto, onto software. Um, when you... Uh, it, one of the beauties of working at IBM, which is something I'd never experienced, was everyone knows IBM. So you didn't really have to explain who IBM was. But can you kind of describe IBM's business? If you're, if you're meeting someone who's just landed from another planet at a cocktail party, how do you describe IBM today if people want to know about IBM's business? Yeah, the, the history is really important. And it's it's been interesting to, you know, even as someone that's only been with the company you know a little over five years um, you know and, and I've had a wonderful run I, I really share your your thinking that it is a privilege and an honor to work at such a large and his history uh, company um, a lot of the history that I I've learned and, and read up on of, of all the things that I've read um, the, the the book uh, who says elephants can't dance uh, by Lou Gershner um, is a really really wonderful uh, piece of history on uh, a time when IBM was facing a very difficult decision, when many companies at the time were splitting up and, and dividing into many different pieces, he was faced with a decision of whether to keep IBM whole or to, to divide it into its separate parts. And there are some you know, wonderful anecdotes in the book, but long story short, at the time, uh, Lou made the decision to keep IBM whole. And um, in that decision, he invested in ramping up our consulting and our software divisions to provide a complementary set of skills. Essentially, we provide the technology and we provide the means to implement it. Now, consulting is fully agnostic, right? And, and even to a, 
uh, to a fault. You know, it's it's difficult as a software builder to have you know my my own consulting teams going and selling our competitors, but that, that's really what they should do, right? And and that's you know true to the consulting practice. You give clients what they need, but we still have a big mainframe business. But it's it's been neat to see over the years how quickly the software businesses have grown, um, and the span of the software that we cover is is pretty far and wide, right? We have um, a strong, you know, data and AI practice. We've got Watson in the portfolio, and um, you know, Watson has continued to grow since um, you know big big market moment with uh, you know Watson on Jeopardy, right? With with Ken Jennings and seeing seeing that in action a long time ago. A lot of people say, okay, Watson, you know, I know it does Jeopardy, but I don't know what else it does. It's grown so much since then, and having the the uh, proliferation of ChatGPT, all these new technologies coming to the market. Um, it's been neat to see Watson having another moment again, and and you know, uh, it hasn't stopped growing, it hasn't stopped developing, right? It's still there, and it's still providing enterprise grade AI solutions, machine learning solutions to, to companies. So, um, within software, we've got data and AI, we've got supply chain, which is my focus, and um, really quite a bit of depth in supply chain from companies that we've acquired, some that are homegrown, and and you know, my portfolio is a mix of those two, um, and many other. Uh, uh, products and technologies, including asset management, right? We've got Maximo, Tririga. You know, these are companies that in some cases IBM acquired, and similar to your experience, you know, invested in to combine or nurture or grow. And, and in many cases, they they stand as staples of their industries. Right? When it comes to asset management, everyone knows uh, Maximo, right? And, and everyone uh, uses it, right? It, it runs the asset management for major airports around the world and major major facilities that. You know, people don't know under the surface what goes into maintaining these facilities, but it's it's really impressive technology. Well, it's a remarkable um, story. Um, let's talk a bit about your story and and how it culminated at IBM. I'm I'm always fascinated to see what people studied at college. Uh, obviously, college isn't the only way to start your career, but you it seems like you were was it economics and political science, and then you went to Duke and. Um, did an MBA. What is Duke like? I, I grew up in the UK, um, and so I went to the London Business School for a, uh, what was not really an MBA. It was like just one month of very intensive study with a bunch of people from all around the world, learning about accounting and uh, and supply chains and so forth. But what was what is Duke like uh, um, as a as someone who didn't grow up in in the US? I'm uh, fascinated by that brand and that environment. Yeah, I, I think I'm lucky to have had experiences at so many different places that have rich histories. And Duke is definitely a place with a rich history, right? The, the, from the moment you walk onto the campus and and you see the the cathedral, right? The, the beautiful history, architecture, everything down to the library. And weird to get excited about a library, but I, I loved their library. They were just beautiful, beautifully designed. You know, you get excited to go in and study and um, it was a wonderful experience. Yeah, I, I was at uh, the you know, Fuqua School of Business, and um, it opened up my eyes in a in a really exciting way. So, in in my undergrad, I was at a liberal arts school and you know, studied economics, political science, and ultimately really felt that that translated well to finance. And, and I was very fixated on the financial world. I wanted to get into finance, but very quickly in the financial world, I realized that technology was revolutionizing everything that we were doing. So from an early start at the New York Stock Exchange, I kind of was focused on data, on technology, um, and then worked for a, another firm called Pico Quantitative Trading that facilitated trading infrastructure. 
all of this to say, you know, this this was a neat path where I started realizing more and more the value of technology, my own passion for building and creating products and experiences that really had an impact on not only my clients, but, you know, the, the world, right? And, and trying to drive a positive impact. So uh, when I got to Duke, I didn't really know what the path was going to be, um, but it was incredible how much it opened my eyes to what's out there, right? How many different career paths there are. And everyone talks about, you know, I'm not sure what I want to do with my life. I'm still not sure, right? I, I don't think anyone really is. And I, I think it's healthy to keep an open mind, right? You can always change your path and do something new. But um, it was it was really exciting to discover for the first time that this kind of career path in product management where I could build and be the CEO of my own product. And, and um, I, I really kind of learned about that there. You know, Duke Duke as a school has incredible teachers. I took a, a class that I'll never forget with Cam Harvey um, that was all about um, uh, crypto um, and crypto, crypto implementation, not cryptocurrency necessarily, but um, all of the things happening with blockchain and the technology and um, different ways to implement it. And, and in that class, we wrote our own smart contracts on Ethereum. We actually implemented things. And, and Cam is Known known very well as as a leader in in kind of the crypto space and and um and and has spoken publicly on many many different occasions. But having exposure to him, having exposure to that class, and in that class, ironically, we had uh, someone come and speak to us about IBM Food Trust, this new IBM product that had been created with a vision to address uh, food traceability in in you know throughout the world. And I, I kind of stuck with me and and you know that was that was you know less than a year before I graduated a few months before I graduated I just couldn't stop thinking about how cool uh, of a of a use of it, you know that new technology and um I, I just how exciting it was it really sunk in and and so I couldn't get it out of my mind and um it's been a neat journey to ultimately come to to own the product that I was so impressed by at the time well I really think uh your job is a tough one I mean on one hand you've got the power of a massive company with some awesome customers but product management I think is one of the hardest jobs in the world uh, and it's one of these things where it's kind of easy to get along and do it badly but to do it well is so difficult uh, and it requires that um, 360 degree uh, renaissance person type uh, capability to you've got to understand technology and the business and uh, it's uh, sequencing and uh, uh, it requires so many skills so for someone with your talents i'm sure it's a lot of fun um i gotta get to the those the hardest questions of the interview which are your three uh, favorite songs and why so what did you choose i i love this question i, I i'm just so so happy about thinking about that because i love music I've, I've always been kind of music focused and for me, music is highly nostalgic, right? It, it, in some cases, transports me back to a certain place and time. Um, and so I started thinking about you know, songs that have actually had an impact that bring me back. Um, one is a very uh, lesser known song by the Beatles. Um, and the story is when I was in elementary school, I was in a, a band. You know, we, we had a small cover band. We had a, you know, a drummer, a bass player, a piano player, and I was guitar and singing and, and, you know, we even had uh, some, some guests coming in playing the saxophone and, you know, singing for us. It, it was a really fun band. We performed at our middle school dance once. And that was probably the, the peak of my elementary school life. I, I just, I, you know, I thought it was the coolest thing ever, but there was a moment when we were practicing and, and my mom gave us the, 
as a gift the the full the full um charts and the full scores of all of the Beatles songs ever published and it was this thick book you know you, you open it up and you get all the different instruments all the different parts but as a result of that we did mostly Beatles covers cover music and uh, and so you know one of the songs that I remember was really difficult to play but um really just sounded so good when we played it together was and your bird can sing uh, by the Beatles and it's got this great guitar riff coming in and I, I don't know how many people know it. I, I think it's a little bit of a fringe song, but it just yeah. it brings me back to you know s- sitting sitting in that band room in, in elementary school with with our friends and just playing together. So that that's my first wonderful choice. I'm I'm intensely jealous, uh, but uh, what a great story! Uh, yeah, fantastic. Yeah. And you were you were going to say what's your second? The second is an interesting one no no one's going to figure out what my uh, taste in music is because i i this is a combination of two uh two music tastes that really don't go together i'm a i'm a real lover of andre bocelli um and his singing and specifically i've never been an opera fan i don't think i could sit and and watch a 3 hour long opera and and be thrilled about it but he takes opera and combines it with pop music and there's a song he did a collaboration with ed sheeran uh, that's called perfect symphony and so, so as a gift, because my wife knows that I, I love, you know, Andre Bocelli, she, she took me to the concert um, a couple of years ago in Madison Square Garden, and it was one of the greatest concerts. You know, you've got Andrea up on stage bringing, you know, his family together. He's got his son, he's got his daughter, he's got, um, you know, singers from all different uh, events. He's got a cellist that was, you know, playing drums on the cello. It was just a great, great memory and a really special one. So a combination of opera and uh, Ed Sheeran and, and it just it comes together in a really really nice way so that's that's number two awesome I've always wanted to go to Madison Square Gardens never never did it I did go and see you two at the sphere the other day though and that was just absolutely mind-blowingly amazing I'm sure the sphere in Las Vegas uh, yeah yeah I, yeah um, oh my gosh it was uh, I, I I mean it cost an arm and a leg but I'd I'd, I'd find another arm and another leg and and, and go again uh, to uh, just experience it. I want to see the movies and uh, that sort of thing anyway but you know that's new and uh, um, doesn't have the amazing history of Madison Square Garden which has just seen so many of rock's historic uh, uh, concerts. I think that was where John Lennon did his last performance. Uh, Elton John asked him on stage. I'm just listening to uh, Bernie Tolpin's um, uh, memoir at the moment, and he describes uh, that. Anyway, there's been a lot of amazing concerts there. Uh, you are hitting it out of the park. Um, what's 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 the third one? The third and and most important, uh, which is. Uh, more for me than than for anyone is um, another lesser known artist, but uh, it's the song that I chose for my first dance at my wedding, um, and it's this artist named Ben Rector, and and the song is forever like that. It's it's a little cheesy, um, it hits all the points. You know, we we want to be, you know, very lovey dovey and and uh, you know probably grown worthy for some people, but this one was solidified in my memory not just because of our first dance, but um, my uh, Ben Rector. Um, Hey, he's a, he's a pretty popular artist, but he's still kind of up and coming. And so we we managed to go to one of his concerts a, a few years ago in uh, in New York, and it was on a pier that had just recently been completed. And we were on the roof roof of this pier uh, down in the financial district of New York, 
you can see the the Brooklyn Bridge, beautiful views of the water. And we didn't know what he was going to play, but um, he ended up playing, you know, our favorite song. He played all of his hits and we were so happy afterwards. You know, we, we you know, went to grab a drink at a, a bar nearby and we ended up seeing his his drummer, uh, Scooter. Um, and uh, so, you know, I, I had to say hi to Scooter on the street. And so I walked up and I said, Scooter, you know, you don't know me, but you were amazing. You know, what a performance. And then all of a sudden, Ben, the, the man himself walked up right behind us. And it, it's a moment where you realize, you know, these these artists are just people like us. They're just good people. And they, they're on a, an incredible journey. And they, they brought such joy to to so many people's lives. That was just such a great moment. And, and they all ended up climbing into the Uber that my wife and I had ordered to go home. Uh, and so we said, you know, you guys can come with us if you want, but we're not going where you're expecting you're going. So, uh, so had all snafu with them and it was, it was great. Uh, it was just a really special moment. So uh, that's, that's a, a good, good core memory. Yeah, those are great choices. Um, uh, wonderful. Well, uh, Wiggs, it's been a delight to have you on the show. Thanks very much. Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it. So that's the conversation with Wiggs and IBM. I loved his music choices. I hope you did too. Really appreciate your uh, listening to the end. Please do rate, review, share, and support the podcast if you can. I want to thank you. Uh, I also want to thank Brooke and Aaron for everything that they do on the show, our uh, social media and uh, uh, chief editor and and, uh, program note writer. Speak to you next time. Stay safe. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.